Okay, how many of you like to argue? Come on now. All right, let me re-ask that. How many of you, when you argue, you want to win? If your hand's not up, you need counseling or you're lying. I'm not sure which. All right, we're going to talk for just a minute about how you argue for the pro-life view. And I want to give you the three most important words in defending the pro-life view. You may want to write these down so you remember them. The three most important words. Here they are. Word number one, syllogism. Some of you are going, what in the world is that? What language is that? It's English. Let me define a syllogism for you. It's a couple of statements, what we call premises, followed by a conclusion. For example, all men are mortal, or let me put it this way, a little easier. Socrates is a man. All men are mortal. What's the conclusion? Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Pro-lifers have a syllogism, and I'm going to tell you in a minute why it's so important. It's so important that if you don't stick to your syllogism that I'm going to give you in a minute, people will change the topic on you when it comes to abortion. How many of you have ever been in an argument with your spouse? You were winning. The Lord knew you were winning. Every rational mind in the universe knew you were winning, and your spouse changed the subject on you. Uh, some of you are going to be in trouble tonight. Sir, I have a couch in my basement if you need it. Uh, how many of you have changed the subject when you were losing? Any honest people here tonight? A few. Okay. The problem is when we talk about abortion, almost nobody deals with the actual argument that's in place. So we're going to give you that argument. Second most important word. Write this down so you don't forget it. Syllogism. What do you think the third word's going to be? Syllogism. You have prophetic gifts in this church. This is amazing. Why? Again, because we want to keep the main thing the main thing. So let me give you your pro-life syllogism and then teach you how to stick to it like glue. Here's your pro-life syllogism. Premise one, it is wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. It is wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills innocent human beings. Abortion intentionally kills innocent human beings. Conclusion, therefore abortion is wrong. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that, therefore it's wrong. Now that is what we call a formal argument, meaning you've got premises followed by a conclusion. Now if those of you that were in the service this morning, you know that we defend that argument scientifically and philosophically as well as biblically. But let's go for the science part. We argued from science that the unborn from the one cell stage are distinct living and whole human beings. They're not part of another human being like skin cells on the back of your hand. When you were at the one cell stage, you were already one of us, even though you had yet to grow and mature. Then we argued philosophically that there's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you back then. Does anybody remember the acronym we gave you to help prove that? SLED. Some of you are really good. That's good. S-L-E-D. The differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, do not justify killing you back then. Look at size. There's your S. Large people are not more human and valuable than small people. We don't think a seven-foot-two basketball star has more value than all of us simply because he's bigger. Level of development? Yes, you were less developed as an embryo. And the answer you should give is, so why does that matter? How developed do I have to be not to be killed? And why that level of development and not something else? In other words, make your critics defend what they're asserting. And then we looked at the E, environment. Where you are doesn't determine what you are. When you walked from your car a few moments ago into this building, you changed location. You probably at least went 70 feet, maybe more. 
If a journey of 70 feet doesn't change you from one kind of thing to another, how does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal change you from non-human, non-valuable thing we can intentionally kill to a valuable human being we can't? And finally, degree of dependency. Just because you depend on another human being doesn't mean we can kill you. Conjoined twins may share bodily systems and need each other's systems, but it doesn't follow you can slit their throats simply because they need each other and depend on each other. So size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. Now, men and women, listen to me very carefully. Here's what typically happens. Almost nobody is going to engage your argument. What do you think they're going to do? Change the subject on you. And here's what they're going to say. They're going to say things like this. Well, you're a man. What right do you have to speak? Or you're just religious. Well, maybe I am. By the way, how do you know I'm a man? I mean, seriously, in today's world, you need to be careful with that. Uh, But seriously, your argument stands or falls apart from you. Your argument is either valid, sound, or it's unsound or not valid, but you can't dismiss it just by saying you're a man or you're religious. That does not refute the argument. So what I want to do is give you, before we go to Q&A, five bad ways people argue about abortion, and I'll tell you why this will be helpful to you. It will help you plug their objection into one of these five bad ways so you don't have to memorize a hundred different objections. You'll recognize it. So the first bad way people argue is they assume rather than argue. I'm going to pick on you, sir, since you were the one being very confident that you have never been wrong in a marital argument uh, do you have a brother? Do you have a brother? Name one of them. James. What's your name? Brian. Have you stopped beating your brother James yet? I didn't ask you that. Have you stopped? Uh, no, that's not what I've asked you. Have you stopped? Okay, would you all extend your hands toward this brother? We have issues. Now, was my question fair, yes or no? What did I assume? How much evidence did I give you that he beats his brother? Zero. I simply assumed it. And people do this with abortion all the time. They simply assume the unborn aren't human. They don't argue for it. So they'll say things like this. Well, we need to trust women to make their own personal decisions. Women have a right to privacy. Now imagine instead of killing fetuses, we were talking about killing toddlers. Would anybody make the argument for privacy or trusting women? Never in a million years. They only do this with abortion, and here's why. They assume, like I assumed with you, a premise that they haven't argued for. They assume the unborn aren't human. They don't make a a case for it. They just assume it, like I did with you. It's President Joe Biden saying on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, abortion is good for, quote, everyone. Mr. President, is abortion good for the unborn? Is it good for them? Of course it isn't. But that argument only resonates with people because they assume the unborn aren't human. So we have got to make sure that that assumption doesn't fly. And here's how you're going to do it. You're going to use a little tactic called trot out the toddler. Every time you hear an argument for abortion, in your mind I want you to ask yourself, would this work as a good argument for killing a two-year-old? If the answer is no, they're assuming the unborn aren't human. So here's how it might work. Somebody comes to you and says, well, why don't you trust women to make their own personal decisions? And you're thinking, how am I going to make it look like I don't hate women? Don't do that. Here's what you say. Right out of your mouth. Pretend I have a two-year-old in front of me. Hold your hand out at knee-high level so they can visualize it. I have a two-year-old in front of me. His parents would like to rough him up in the privacy of the bedroom. Should they be allowed to do it? What's the answer going to be? 
No, you can't do that. Your reply, two words. Why not? Well, because he's a human being. Your reply, one word, said musically. Ah, if the unborn are human like that toddler, should they be killed in the name of privacy any more than we'd kill a toddler for that reason? Well, that's different. The unborn aren't human. The toddler is. You may be right about that. Maybe my argument's bad, but I need you to show me that it's bad. I need you to make your argument, not simply assume what you're trying to prove. Is everybody following me right now? So let's try one together. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, why do you hate women so bad? Why do you want to force a woman who already has 10 kids she can't afford to feed to bring another child into this world she can't support? You're so cruel, you want to force her to do that, and you're trying to think, oh, no, how do I prove that I don't hate women? No, wrong Trot out your toddler. I have a two-year-old in front of me. His parents can't afford to feed him, and to balance the checkbook at the end of the month, they want to eliminate their poverty problem by eliminating the toddler. Should they be allowed to do it? What's the answer going to be? No. Your reply? Not ah. Some of you are too anxious. Why not? Because he's a human being. Ah. Ah what? Not aha. I heard that. Ah. If the unborn are human like that toddler, should they be killed in the name of economic hardship any more than we'd kill a toddler for that reason? In other words, force them to defend their assumption the unborn aren't human. Don't let them get away with it. Make them defend it. Second bad way people argue is they attack rather than argue. They don't deal with the argument. They attack you personally. Oh, you're pro-life? Really now, how many unwanted children have you adopted? None? There goes your whole case. Really? Let's go back to our syllogism. Remember the three most important words? Syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. Suppose I am that bad. I hate children after they're born. I only care about them before birth. How does my alleged unwillingness to adopt a child justify an abortionist killing one? I mean, imagine if I said to all of you, unless you agree to adopt my three sons by noon tomorrow, I shall execute them. Now, that's not going to happen because they're all bigger than me now, but play along. Suppose they were little still. If you turn me down, does that justify me executing them? No. Your argument for the pro-life view, men and women, if you forget virtually everything else I tell you tonight, remember this. Your argument stands or falls on its merits, not you. All they're doing is attacking you personally. Or how about this one? You're a man. You have no right to speak on this issue. Again, like I said a moment ago, that's a pretty risky thing to say in today's world. How do you know that I'm a man? But let's play along for a moment. Arguments don't have gender, people do. By the way, don't pro-life women use the same exact arguments that I do? Yes, you've got to refute the argument. Oh, one other thing, if no man can speak on abortion, Roe v. Wade should have been overturned 50 years ago. Who decided Roe v. Wade? Anybody want to guess? Men or women? Nine men. If no man can speak on abortion, Roe v. Wade should have never been the law of the land. And yet it was. So this is an example of attacking the person rather than refuting the argument. Or they might say to you this, oh, you're pro-life? Really? Well, what are you doing about other life issues? What are you doing about the environment? What are you doing about the poor? What are you doing about kids that are disadvantaged? What are you doing about inner city poverty? It seems to me you only care about kids before they're born. You're just pro-birth. You're not pro-life. Well, suppose you were unwilling to do anything for anyone after birth. Could your argument that abortion is wrong still be valid and sound? Yes or no? Yes, because the argument stands on its own, independent of you. And what do you hear in the press almost every day in the media? 
pro-lifers are evil people. They hate women. Well, maybe we do and maybe we don't. How does that refute our argument? you got to deal with the argument, and part of being a pro-life apologist is keeping the main thing the main thing. Another bad way people argue is they assert rather than argue. Tell me if this is an argument or an assertion. Women have a right to choose. What is it? Assertion because I gave you what? No evidence. I just made a claim. Where if I say it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings, abortion does that, therefore it's wrong, I have actually made an argument, not an assertion. Tell me if this is an argument or an assertion. My wife is not here tonight, therefore she has eloped with Michael Jackson in Las Vegas and Elvis is doing the music for the ceremony. Argument or assertion? Are you sure about that? Anybody say argument? Put your hand up if you did. You are correct, sir. You are a brilliant genius. It is indeed an argument. And there was a key word that gave it away. Therefore. Now, is it a good argument? No, it's lousy. It does not follow that because my wife is not here, she's with Elvis and Michael Jackson, all right? There's a lot, of more, a lot more reasonable things. By the way, if any of you tell my wife I said this, I'll have to kill you, and I'm pro-life. But uh, the, all I've done there is make an assertion. I haven't given you an argument. And you are within your rights to say, well, why should we believe a thing like that? If I say women have a right to choose, you are within your rights to say choose what? And where did that right come from? You can ask them to defend their own claim. Or if they say, well, the unborn aren't viable. They don't have a right to life. How does viability determine what you are? In other words, viability measures our technology. It does not measure the value of a human being. A child that's in New York City is viable at 24 weeks now. But in Bangladesh, probably will not be viable till 28 to 34 weeks. So let's say an American woman begins a journey. She's pregnant. She leaves JFK in New York, pregnant at 24 weeks. She leaves American airspace. Does her child go from being a human with a right to life to being a non-human when it enters Bangladesh airspace and then go back to being human again when she flies home? I mean, this is the kind of silliness we end up with. Viability is not about the value of the human being. It's about the technology we have. What are you going to do when one day we can support embryos at the very earliest stages of development, which will eventually happen? There goes your viability argument. So these are assertions, not arguments. Another bad way people argue, they confuse preference claims with moral claims. Tell me the difference between these two statements. Here goes. Chocolate ice cream is better than vanilla. Some of you are going, that's gospel truth. Truth, Preach it, bro. How about this statement? It is wrong to torture toddlers for fun. Is there a difference between those two? Somebody tell me the difference. When I say chocolate ice cream is better than vanilla, am I making an objective claim or a subjective claim about my taste? Subjective about my taste. And the problem, men and women, we're in a culture today where people think that claims about truth are nothing more than claims about ice cream. You have your preference, I have mine, but let's not judge each other. But this is to confuse moral claims with preference ones. When we say abortion is wrong because it intentionally kills an innocent human being, are we making a subjective claim or an objective claim? So when someone says to you, don't force your personal views on me, what have they done to your claim? They've changed it from a ob- an objective claim to a preference one they like better. You don't have to let them get away with this. 
Years ago, I don't know how many of you remember the show Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. Does that show ring a bell with anybody? Bill Maher is not exactly a friend of conservatives, and the way the show would work, he would usually have four liberals ganged up on one conservative, which made it about even. And one particular night, the conservative was Kathy Ireland, the former supermodel, and she came on the set, and Bill went right to her. He said, Kathy, how come you're not pro-choice? Listen to Kathy's answer. She said, Bill, I used to be pro-choice, but then my husband went to medical school. And when he went to medical school, I began to read some of the same textbooks he was reading for his courses. And I read there that there's a principle in biology called biogenesis. Living things reproduce after their own kind. That means dogs produce dogs, cats produce cats, humans produce humans. And I reasoned from that if the unborn come from human parents, they too are members of the human family and we shouldn't harm them. And Bill, abortion unjustly harms a member of the human family. Tell me, was she making a good argument? Home run, grand slam. Did she make a case? Did she give evidence? Yes, she did. Listen to Bill Maher's reply. By the way, what kind of claim was she making at that point? Objective or subjective? Objective. Listen to Bill Maher's reply. Well, gee, Kathy, that's just your view. What did he just do to her claim? Changed it from objective to subjective. In other words, he didn't refute her argument, he dismissed it. And people will do this to you. Oh, you just don't like abortion. Well, maybe you do and maybe you don't. How does that deal with the argument you're made? Is it possible to like something and still say it's wrong? Of course. But the argument stands or falls on its merits. That's why we say syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. Uh, last bad way people argue, and then we're going to go to questions, they hide behind the hard cases. They bring up things like, what about rape? Now, just so you know, two types of people are going to bring up rape, inquirers and crusaders. Inquirers are intellectually honest. They're hearing your pro-life argument. They heard your syllogism. They heard your defense for it. And they're actually tracking with you. But they're just struggling psychologically, thinking about, well, what about my 14-year-old niece if she were to get pregnant? It's hard for me to imagine her having to carry that child to term when that child will remind her of all she went through. And, and you know what? It may. Let's be honest about that. The child may provoke painful memories. The crusader is not interested in being honest. He's just trying to make you look bad. And so he'll say, oh, you're pro-life? You're going to force a woman who's been raped to have to give birth to a kid that will forever torture her with memories of what she went through? You're, you're going to do that? What kind of awful person are you? So you're going to answer him differently. Let's talk about the inquirer first. Here's your question. The first thing, you, please listen to me on this. What a lot of pro-lifers do when rape is brought up, they immediately go to statistics. Why most women who get raped don't get pregnant. That may be true, but it's the wrong answer. You were just told about a woman who was sexually assaulted. What should your first response be? Empathy, exactly right. And I would say to her, you know what? You make a very good point. You and I agree that that woman who's been assaulted has suffered a terrible injustice. And I also agree with you that you could be right that her child may provoke painful memories of what she went through. Given you and I agree on that, how do you think a civil society should treat innocent human beings who remind us of a painful event? And let the question just hang there a minute. Is it okay to intentionally kill them so we can feel better? In other words, does hardship justify homicide? 
Now, at that point, the inquirer is following the moral logic in play, that it's not okay to intentionally kill an innocent human being just so we can feel better. And she'll track with you. For example, suppose I did have a two-year-old in front of me. His father was a rapist. Would it be okay to execute him so the mother could feel better? People are going to say, no, you can't do that. Well, why not? Well, because he's a human being. Ah, we're back to the real question that matters here. What is the unborn? That's the real question that trumps everything else in this debate. We've got to answer the question, what is it, before we answer the question, can we kill whatever that is in the womb? Final thing, give you an example. A crusader, though, doesn't want any part of this. He's not interested in logic, so I'm going to call his bluff. I'll look at him and say, okay, for the sake of argument, I'm going to grant that we allow abortion in cases of rape. Will you join me in opposing all other abortions that have nothing to do with rape? What's his answer going to be? No, women have a fundamental right to an abortion. Okay, let's talk what that means. What does it mean when you say somebody has a fundamental right? Here's what it means. It's a right that you cannot infringe upon. No restrictions at all. So what you're really arguing for is that women should be allowed to have an abortion for any reason or no reason through all nine months of pregnancy. Why don't you defend that position rather than hiding behind rape victims? In other words, call the bluff. So that's the five bad ways that people tend to argue. And if you recognize these five bad ways, and the biggest one you're going to get in a post-Roe world is people attacking you personally. Why, you're just a religious bigot. Well, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. How does that refute your argument that you're making? Always bring it back to your syllogism and ask, how does this refute the argument I made? And most of the time, it's beside the point completely. Just like when you argue with your spouse and you try to change the subject on your spouse when you're not winning. I'm looking at you, sir. Uh, so uh, that's... Keep that in mind. People tend to attack when they're not winning on the argument. Don't get angry. Just keep them focused on the argument. That's the best thing you can do. So we're going to go ahead and pause right now and start taking some questions. And we're going to give uh, preference to those of you in the audience, I think, first, as you showed up tonight. So you're more holy than those watching online. Uh, those of you that are watching online, we want you to know you can still get saved, but it's going to take you longer. Just kidding. So we're going to go ahead and take some questions here. And we'll, is there a roving mic? Is that how we're going to do that? Okay, so we'll let... Where, where is that roving mic? There it is. Okay. So who would like to ask a question first about anything related to this topic? So we'll, we'll want to use the mic just so those who are live streaming can also hear the question. Thank you. It's not that much of a uh, question of the... The, the specific topic. <clears throat> Just wanted to ask: Is tonight going to be archived on the on the uh, website, the sixth distant event? Yeah, it'll be posted with all our other services on our website and in the app. By the way, before I forget, remember those of you that were in church this morning, and I promised you that if you wanted a summary of that one-minute defense of the pro-life view, I'd have it for you here tonight. This is called the sled card. It's on the back book table. And we are making these two books available tonight, Stand for Life and my book, The Case for Life. You get both books for 25 bucks, not 25 apiece. You get both for 25 And if you're a little bit short, we'll work with you, okay? Those of you online, sorry. Uh, you're going to have to order from Amazon, and they're going to charge you a whole lot more than those that are going to get it tonight for a much more discounted price because they were holy and showed up. All right, so... Scott, do you want to just uh, come every Sunday and just... Just say that 
I, I'd love to come and just berate the people who don't show up, you know, and totally ruin your 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 outreach to the online yeah, next community. Year, ne next Sunday, we're going to have two live stream viewers. Yeah. yeah. They'll all be in church, though. Hopefully. Or they left, but yeah. Way. That means you have to <laughs> preach a really good sermon because I will have gotten them to church. Yeah. All right. Do we have any questions? We have some questions that have been submitted on the app that we can go to, but we'd prefer to start with some live here. So if you do have a question... Okay, we've got one over here. You guys are going to get uh, Mike. Pastor Mike's going to get his steps in tonight, running around the room. I have a question. What if the kid uh, is a, a disabled in some way? Yeah. Today, that doesn't they law appear that for boys to use? Yeah, what about a situation where the child has developmental uh, challenges? And my answer is, very quickly, a damaged human is not a non-human. If we had a two-year-old up here who was developmentally disabled, we would not think it's okay to kill him because he will never function the same way that a healthier child might that didn't have the disabilities. So notice that objection that you, you raised there. Assumes the unborn aren't human. Remember we talked about people assume rather than they argue? Nobody would bring up disabled children as a, a justification for abortion it, unless they assume the unborn aren't human and probably the people that raised this question with you that's what they're doing they're assuming the unborn aren't human that's a very good question I'm really glad you brought that up because it brings us back remember I told you that most of the objections can be slotted into one of those five areas that's an example of somebody assuming the unborn aren't human a damaged human is not a non-human even if they're their, their disability is profound. We had a, a young uh, lady who was a part of our congregation for many years. Uh, her name is Linda. She was in a wheelchair, and um, there was a lot of pressure on her parents to abort her when yeah. they found out that she had disabilities before she was born. And uh, Linda lived, I believe, I don't know if Vicky's here tonight, but um, a lot of you remember Linda. She was such a sweet person, uh, such a joy. And she brought joy to my heart on many occasions. Um, she was so faithful. I think Linda was pretty much at every event we held as a church. And uh, I remember at the memorial service, uh, her mom sharing that story that they decided to move forward with uh, the pregnancy and not to abort the child. And um, Linda ended up living, you know, almost three or four times longer than any medical expert would have, you know, said she would. And um, you know, you can look at just personal experiences like that, too, in people's lives and say, look at this, this person who, you know, by all the medical standards a doctor would have advised, you know, I, would, yeah. I would recommend you terminate this pregnancy because that's the lingo they like to use instead of saying kill this child. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you see a life that was glorifying to the Lord, brought joy to God's, God's people, and it just is amazing what that step of faith from, and that, that, I think it's important too that you've been hitting on this a lot, that we don't shy away from the difficulty of that situation. No. That's a difficult situation. Difficult, it is. And the question we always got to come back to, however difficult it might be, is this. Does this difficulty justify intentionally killing an innocent human being? Now I want to just add one little thing to what you just said. You're not wrong, I'm just adding something. It is true that disabled children often bring us a lot of joy. I mean, our church specializes in ministry to families with special needs. Our church is full of people with special needs, especially children. We actually bust them into service, and they're there with us. We go out of our way to help get them to church. But I want to be careful that we don't make the pro-life argument, look how much joy these children bring us. 
It would be wrong to kill those children even if they brought us no joy because our argument is that it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being regardless of what they do for us. The homeless man on the street may not bring us any joy at all, but it's still wrong to intentionally kill him. So we just want, not that you're wrong no, yeah, to celebrate, totally the, saying, yeah. but we want to keep the main thing the main thing. And sometimes I've heard pro-lifers make a bad argument. They don't realize they're making a bad argument. You didn't, but it goes like this. Well, think about this. You know, Beethoven was disabled. We probably aborted the next Beethoven, or we aborted the next doctor that would cure cancer or COVID. That's not a good argument. The pro-life argument is not that abortion is wrong because it kills a potential you know, musician, or it kills the next greatest scientist. Our argument is abortion is wrong because it intentionally kills an innocent human being regardless of his abilities. It's just as wrong to intentionally kill a homeless man that can't offer us anything as it is to intentionally kill Steve Jobs who gives us iPhones. Yeah, the fundamental, princi the fundamental yeah. principle is still the same. It's yeah. the same. We have another question? Okay. In the structure of your argumentation, you're not quoting the Bible, giving addresses, mentioning Jesus, which I find refreshing for secular people. Can you talk a little more about that rationale of that purposeful deletion? Yeah. Um, we live in a culture, men and women, that thinks religious truth claims do not count as real knowledge. They think that anything you, you, you argue from religiously is just a personal opinion. It has no basis in rationality. And so I'm not trying to pretend that the Bible isn't rational. I'm just trying to reach them with common ground arguments so that I can start a discussion with them. I inevitably end up at the Bible with them. But if you just walk in the room and start quoting scripture to people who think the Bible doesn't have any logical authority or foundation to it, how far are you going to go? I'd rather try to reach the people and engage them. And I know there are some Christians who think that the way we prove the sufficiency of Scripture is we don't use rational arguments. We just cite the Bible. But that's a misuse of the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture means this. Scripture is absolutely sufficient for giving you everything you need to know for salvation and Christian discipleship. It does not claim that there's nothing to be gained from sources outside of Scripture. That is not a good view of the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture is absolutely first in authority, but it's not first in knowing. For example, to even approach Scripture, you have to have some suppositions in place. You have to believe that the text can be understood. Okay, you have to know that prior to approaching the text. That doesn't mean the Bible is somehow a lesser inferior thing. It just means we recognize that we don't overstate what we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture. I think we've all experienced that to a certain degree, too, if you've tried to have this conversation in a public setting yep. with a non-believer. If you just whip out your Bible and start reading Scripture, and they don't, you know, a non, we were talking about this at lunch, non-believers yep. are non-believers. Yep. I don't expect a non-believing person to have the same moral convictions and moral compass that I have as a, a born-again Christian. And so if I take my, my, the way that I view the world through the lens of Christ— and try to impose that on that person, we're going to struggle to find common ground. And I've found this to be true in discussions with a lot of my generation, who largely the millennial generation, and some I say that word and some of you are like, Ugh, the millennials. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of millennials really, I find, even in my Christian circles, um, aren't totally sure what they think on this, this subject. And so we definitely need clarity. And of course, if you're talking with a fellow believer, appeal to scripture because... 
I would hope that they're, they're appealing to Scripture as the ultimate authority for their life. But I think outside of a conversation when you're talking to somebody who's a non-believer, yeah, you, they're, they're, you have to find common ground. I think that's really good advice. And by the way, why shouldn't we celebrate God in his graciousness to us as rebel sinners, giving us knowledge to help us make better cases for what we believe? Is it in Scripture how to fly a 747? No, but God has graciously given us knowledge that that you will appreciate when you're at 40,000 feet. That didn't come from the Bible, but God still revealed it is truth, and we are wise to benefit from it. And we can view that as a gift from a holy God who owes us nothing, but he gave us knowledge that we can use to make a difference. That's good. We've got another question here. Okay. Oh, yeah, there it goes. Um, this is more of a comment than a question, and uh, I just would like to say that all truth is God's truth. And that's, I went to seminary, and that was one of the things they taught us. So that includes scientific truth. And science teaches us that a one-cell fertilized zygote or embryo is the beginning of human life. It does, yes. And I'll just add it, it's one. It's in every embryology book. Yep. And I have it one is. at home because yep. I happen to be a dentist, and I studied it in dental school. Yep. Um, I'll just add one thing to what you said. The term fertilized egg, which you didn't use, you use fertilized zygote, which is more accurate. A lot of people in, in the culture today talk about a fertilized egg. That's actually a misnomer. Sperm and egg die in the act of fertilization. They surrender their constituents into the makeup of a new entity, the zygote or the embryo. So when you hear people say, why should a fertilized egg have a right to life? You're not arguing that a fertilized egg has a right to life. You're arguing that you did at the one cell stage and you weren't a fertilized egg at that point because sperm and egg died in the act of surrendering their constituents into the makeup of new being you at the one cell stage. That's good. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm trying to process the comments about kind of not using scripture. Yeah. And it seems ultimately we're, we're appealing to God's law. Yes, we are. Right? The Actually, to that, a theistic that, foundation, yes. Right. So we are actually coming to them from um, a Christian biblical perspective. We are. So but, I guess if I could. Yeah, go ahead. And, and maybe this is a statement you can respond to a little bit more. Um, why would we shy away from using the Bible? I mean, ultimately, we are. And I think that adds authority to it rather than, I mean, I think you talked about, was it Oprah, not Oprah, some, someone else on The we'll View. Be Goldberg. Whoopi, Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg on The View, right? Yeah. Religion shouldn't come into, the, into this at all, but she's going to use religion to attack us, right? Right. Because well, ultimately they understand yeah. that it does matter and they have, they have a, 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 a knowing the, God's law has been written on their heart. So I think it, it doesn't seem... Uh, as wise to just dismiss that we should come with the Bible to some, to some degree. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Thank you for that. I knew you were going to come after me after I called you out. You know, <laughs> I and, love to uh, argue. I got you in marital, marital trouble already. So, you know, you, it, tit for tat, I had it coming. Um, I'll, I'll try to respond to that very briefly. I'm not saying we can never use Scripture. And you're right that ultimately our position depends on a theistic argument because in a universe that came from nothing and was caused by nothing, nothing has value in a right to life. Not fetuses, not adults, not cockroaches, 
not the great apes. Nothing has value in a right to life, so you're right. But here's the thing. The argument that a fetus has value in a right to life is no more religious than saying it doesn't. It's no more religious than saying a 10-year-old does. So you're correct that there is a theistic foundation there, but here's my point. Tactically, I will lose a ton of people if I'm standing in front of an audience debating the president of the ACLU and I go right to Psalm 139 in my opening statement. I've just lost that crowd. And is that the wisest thing? Is that the most prudent way to proceed? And I don't think it is. Now, I usually bring gospel into my debates, especially when I talk about that there can be forgiveness when I'm getting ready to show a videotape depicting abortion. So I do get scripture in, but I don't think in most cases when you're dealing with people who assume that biblical truth doesn't count as real knowledge, that starting there by citing scripture is going to be the best way tactically to engage them. I don't think I'm denying the power of scripture at that point. I think I'm just being biblically prudent and doing what Paul did. You know, you think about Paul at Mars Hill. He quotes pagan poets to make a case for the resurrection of Jesus. And he didn't and he, he was smart to do that because to the Jews, resurrection made some sense, but they didn't think it would happen in their lifetime to their Messiah. To the pagan mind, bodily resurrection was completely absurd and offensive. And therefore, Paul, knowing that, cites some pagan sources that talk about their, this whole issue. So I think Paul even illustrates this. Jesus used logic in encountering people. So I'm not trying to say don't use scripture. I'm saying tactically, I, I think it's important for us to know how to make arguments with people who are predisposed to believe we don't have any rational arguments. Yeah. No. I think William Lane Craig talks about this a lot in his book On Guard. And yep. he, uh, William Lane Craig is a fantastic uh, apologist. And if you haven't read his book On Guard, I would recommend you read it because it will equip you to be able to have these discussions, but he appeals a lot to just morality and, and logical arguments, but it's always founded in, you know, obviously his Christian worldview and in scripture. And I think bringing, you know, we're certainly not saying when you have these discussions with people, don't tell them you're a Christian, yeah. <laughs> right? But I think yeah. that you can also be strategic and, and wise and, you know, say, okay, what's the best way to find some common ground with this person and then yep. open up the opportunity. But of course, I think that that's, I, I could hear automatically the argument, well, isn't God's word sufficient? And I don't think that that's, you're not saying anything about the sufficiency of scripture, right? I'm saying that people tend to misuse what we mean by the sufficiency of right. scripture. Now, I will say this, one thing that's interesting, I've seen this work the other way. We speak in a lot of Catholic and Protestant high schools, my speaking team and I, and we go into secular Catholic high schools where these kids are not at all religious in their view. And you know what the number one comment we get after our presentations? Wow, we had no idea that somebody could defend the pro-life view. We've never heard it defended. And we have got cases, we've got emails we now save of students who write us and say, you know, because you made a defense of the pro-life view, we started looking at deeper claims related to Christianity. In fact, I'm going to name a couple of names. Hadley Arcus, who's written perhaps the best refutation of moral relativism anywhere, was a secular Jew, an atheist, but he listened to the logic of the pro-life view and he switched his mind on abortion, listening to pro-life apologists lay out a case for the pro-life view. 
and he, he began, and these were Christians, and he began to think, wait a minute, if these Christians can talk intelligently on abortion, maybe they've got something else I need to think about. Arcus is no longer an atheist. He's now a Christian theist. He believes, and what drew him to the truth of Christianity was the fact that the pro-life position was being well argued by pro-life Christians, and that drew him to take a deeper look at the Christian worldview in general. Lee, I don't know Lee Strobel's same story, right? Lee, Lee Strobel in, would be another one. Goes yeah. in to basically say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write an article to debunk yep. Christianity and becomes a Christian. Becomes a Christian. <laughs> That's usually a dangerous thing when you do things yeah. like that. Yeah. We have another question? Right. Um, hey, Scott. So uh, my question's related to, um, you know, using an objective standard and sufficiency of Scripture. I was going to ask you what your thoughts were on presuppositional apologetics, but I, I think I know by now. Um, but I wanted to ask maybe in a form of like a scenario. So you set up the, the syllogism and, you know, you run this conversation that you have with someone. They accept everything that you're saying, but they're just, they just refuse to still give up their position. There are people like that, yeah. So what, what do you do when the syllogism fails? Here's what, the what's thing. What's your next appeal? You're correct. Logic does not fix everything. In fact, it's quite possible that logic won't work. In fact, without the Spirit of God working, logic doesn't work. But guess what else doesn't work? Preaching, counseling, quoting Scripture to people. Remember, the demons know Scripture very well, and they don't believe. So without the Spirit regenerating the person, they're not going to become believers. But here's the thing I want to draw the distinction on. When I'm a pro-life apologist... I am not necessarily only working to get salvation, though I'm happy when that happens. God's given us two ways to restrain evil in the culture. One is through people coming to faith in Christ, and they become regenerated and their hearts change, and then they no longer resist the truth. But for those that do resist the truth, God has given us a way to control the heartless. It's called civil law. Martin Luther King put it this way, the law cannot make the white man love me, but it can stop him from lynching me, and that matters. And that's what we're trying to do. We're not necessarily trying to get people to become converted Christians by a pro-life apologetic, and you're exactly right. It may not work. There are people who will dig in, but people do that with preaching too. They harden their hearts and refuse to respond even with the best of preachers. I mean, I have seen examples where we were out witnessing on a college campus and we were doing, you know, what some would call open-air evangelism. And we were bringing it, man. We were bringing pure gospel and, and the team was doing great and I was proud of them. And yet you're always going to get people who resist it. So that's going to happen no matter what. And I tell people, if the Spirit of God is moving, a lot of things work. Apologetics work, preaching works. Uh, but without the Spirit, nothing regenerates a person and brings them to God. And I, I think also you can go back to something Scott said earlier this morning, too, is that our duty ultimately is to just give them the truth, yeah. put the pebble in the shoe, right? And uh, I mean, in my experience over the years with evangelism, I would say 99% of the time people are not, you know, praying with me right then and there and, yeah. you know, asking the Lord to, to you know, redeem them. It, it's, it's usually like, you know what, maybe we can agree to disagree on this or, you know, I've never yeah. thought about it like that. And usually we part ways and then you pray for them and I pray, Lord, I hope that something I said can stick with them and keep them up tonight and that they would continue to think about it. One other thing to add to this, the great debater William Rusher, who wrote the book How to Win Our Arguments More Often Than Not, those of you that are married are going to rush to Amazon tonight to pick that up. 
Uh, don't use it in your marriages. But he, he was the guy that would appear on firing line with William F. Buckley, and they would have these incredible debates. He's an expert on debate, and he said something very interesting. He said debates are almost never won on the spot. They're won several weeks later when the person you were engaging is alone with his or her thoughts, and they finally, in the privacy of the moment, maybe when they're driving through the drive through at Starbucks or McDonald's, they admit to themselves in the quiet of their thoughts that, that you had the better argument. So sometimes we think, okay, that tactic didn't work because we're judging effectiveness right on the spot rather than what happens two to three weeks later. Thank Great you. question. Yeah, my, um, my wife has a better question that I'd like to ask. Do you uh, see what he just said there? That was wise. Yeah. That, you, you, you're still going to need my couch tonight, but that's... <laughs> no, that's, that's him right there. <laughs> oh, okay, that's you. Okay, never mind. Go ahead. I thought it was him for a moment. <laughs> he was quick to make sure. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. How would you encourage another Christian who doesn't think it's their job or their role to uh, speak on this issue of abortion? They just... You know, it's it's not their their uh, it's not for them to say or for them to maybe interject on someone else's life's decisions or whatever the case. I've heard it said a lot. It's not my place to judge that person, right? Well, suppose that person was getting ready to kill their toddler. Would would that same individual say, "I'm not I'm not going to force my views. I'm not going to say anything." Notice the objection from the fellow Christian assumes the unborn aren't human. Because they would not argue that way if someone was getting ready to kill their toddler or teenager. Some of you are going, teenagers, wait a minute, we need to rediscuss that one. But you get the idea. Uh, they're assuming the unborn aren't human. And by the way, where is it taught in Scripture that we should be silent in the face of evil? Uh, we're told to rescue those being led away to the slaughter. We're told to expose evil, evil deeds rather than cover them up. So... We do have a duty, and God will hold us responsible, but you can also take them to the Bible and say, do you believe that the Great Commission applies to us as believers? And that Great Commission says we're to go make disciples. Well, what does it mean, according to Matthew 28, to go make disciples? We're to teach people to obey all that Christ has commanded. What is one of those things he's commanded? We're not to shed innocent blood. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 teaches this. Exodus 23, 7 teaches it. Matthew 5 teaches this. Both old and new covenants, we got that in there. So the idea that Christians shouldn't impose their views, this is relativism, not biblical theology you're hearing. Yeah. yeah. Relativism being the belief that right and wrong are personal and preferences rather than objective truths. So somebody that's grounded in Scripture is not going to make that argument. Yeah, and I would say that, unfortunately, our churches are riddled with biblical illiteracy. And so this is an argument that's, this is a person arguing who claims to be a Christian but doesn't know Scripture. Yeah. And so that, you know, if you don't know your, your Bible, then you're going to make silly arguments that aren't actually founded in Scripture. Um, and unfortunately, we see this a lot. Uh, I, I, yeah. I, have, I have friends who are very educated in the Christian faith, and they still are arguing for a pro-choice stance on, uh, and I, I, exactly. I mean, we were talking this morning and sometimes you just look at people and think, I don't understand how you've drawn these conclusions, but it's certainly not biblical. Yeah. Do we have another by, question? By the way, just one other thing. If your friend believes we should never judge or correct other people, why is she correcting you? Mm. You see, it, it's a very selective application of this relativistic worldview. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to ask you the question that I asked you earlier. And this meeting is now dismissed. No, go ahead. 
In facilitating healing studies with women and men who have experienced abortion, what advice can you give to us, as well as couples that have not told their significant spouse about abortion or other past hurts that may have happened in their past? Can I just ask a clarification question? Are you Absolutely. asking what should we say as counselors to people who may have had an abortion in their past and they never disclosed it to their spouse? How might we approach that? Is that the question? Yes, it's a two-part question, actually. That would be the first part. The second part is um, encouraging possibly anyone in this room that has a hidden secret and has not shared it with their spouse. Okay, I'm going to give a little caveat here. I am not a relationship counselor, uh, so I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert in this area. And this goes a little deeper than pro-life apologetics. This has to do with how you would, as a counselor, engage people. I mean, my general answer to that would be truth is always to be preferred. But there can be counseling tactical issues that need to be considered as well and how that truth is conveyed. And I'm quite frankly not equipped to tell you how that should unfold in a counseling setting. But I would say this to any of you that whether you're a guy and you've had an experience with abortion or a woman who has, that unconfessed sin keeps us out of full fellowship with Christ. And when we avoid talking about abortion as believers, we don't spare each other a guilt trip. We spare each other healing because of that unconfessed sin. And if you are grounded in the gospel, you have a good sense that there isn't a whole lot of good in you whether you've had an abortion or not. That Listen, we are all rebels at heart. I've got a rap sheet a mile long just from this week, and you may have one just about that long as well. In fact, some of you, based on your questions, I think you do. But um, the great news of the gospel is that we are declared righteous in virtue of Christ. We are not made righteous. That's one of the big mistakes believers make. They think, okay, I've become a Christian. God has now made me holy. No, you are not holy because you still sin, don't you? So do I. The gospel is that we get an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of us that God judges us by. We are declared righteous, meaning counted as righteous, even though we're not. Isn't that an amazing truth of the gospel, that God counts us as righteous even though we aren't righteous? I mean, that's the amazing truth of Scripture. So it is a declared righteousness. That means post-abortion men and women are counted right with God, not because they reform themselves and do enough good deeds to make up for their bad ones, which, by the way, you all know that doesn't work, right? Rather, God counts them as righteous because Jesus stood in their place condemned and took the penalty they deserved, just like he took it for us. So I, I would say let's start with the gospel. Let's start there with people who need to know that that's their only hope for healing. There is no other hope. I don't know any other hope. I've had people say, I can't forgive myself. You're right, you can't. I can't forgive myself because I didn't sin against me. Who did I sin against? My creator. I have to, I have to rest in his declared righteousness. Yeah. Let's jump to a question that we got in the app. Um, this question comes in. I'm just going to read it as it was uh, submitted. It says, the pro-life industry has actually hindered some states' attempts to abolish abortions particularly in opposing equal protection laws, which effectively criminalize an unlawful taking of an innocent life, including in the womb. 
Do you support such laws? And if so, how do we reach those who say they are pro-life who are opposing such laws? All right. I am one of those who opposes the so-called equal protection laws. I have one in my state right now in Georgia. And here's what that says. So you all know what those means, what these laws mean. These equal protection laws equate equal protection for the unborn with prosecuting aborting women for murder. Now, here's why I'm opposing this. Not because I lack principle, not because I don't want equal protection for unborn humans, but given where we are as a culture, laws like this are going to make all other pro-life laws dead on arrival. Think about what's happened since Roe was overturned. We have now had seven times where abortion was put to the public for vote. All seven times we lost, even in red states like Montana, Kentucky, and um, um, Kansas. Why did we lose? Because the pro-abortion industry has been very effective spreading the lie that pro-lifers hate women and want them to die. In other words, if you have an ectopic pregnancy now that Roe is reversed, they've told you you, you can't get it. You can't get life-saving treatment. They've told women that if you have a miscarriage, we're now going to prosecute you for murder because Roe v. Wade is not there to protect you. In what possible world is it prudent to link equal protection to the unborn to prosecuting women for murder in that kind of culture I just described for you? The answer is children are going to die because pro-life legislation that would protect children from conception will never see the light of day. It'll be dead on arrival in state houses all across this country because people will be convinced that all you want to do is prosecute women for murder. And by the way, here's why pro-life laws traditionally have not prosecuted women for murder. In order to convict the abortionist, which is what prosecution is wanted to do, whose testimony do you need to do that? The aborting mother, right? Are you going to get it if you're going to prosecute her the same way you prosecute her? Not a chance. Not only that, in order to prosecute the mother as a co-conspirator for murder, you're going to have to prove that her knowledge of the act exactly matches what we call in legal terms a meeting of the minds. You're going to have to prove that her knowledge of the act matched his completely point by point. They have a meeting of the minds in that they all agree that it's, they're going to have the abortion and she contracts to do it. But beyond that, the, the match breaks down. For example, in his book, Abortion Practice, Warren Hearn, the world's number one abortionist who wrote the medical teaching text on abortion procedures, talks about turning the ultrasound machine away from the aborting mother so she doesn't see it. He talks about connecting a Doppler to measure fetal heart rate so they make sure the fetus is dead before it's removed. He says, make sure that's inaudible to the mother. In other words, you keep her in the dark on these things. You're not going to be able to prove that she knew what he knew to get a conviction for the abortionist. And what these laws end up doing is protecting the abortionist because now you're not going to get him convicted either. And people say, oh, that's crazy. We should be, if we're going to be consistent, we should be punishing people for crimes. Well, I'm not saying there shouldn't be consequences, but let's think about drugs for a moment. Do we publish or do we punish drug dealers the same way we punish the end pot user? Definitely no. not in California. Not in California, but that, in, in a real world where logic still exists. Yeah. Um, I'm a Californian by, by native, so I can say these things. Um, we don't publish the guy who's smoking a joint the same way we publish the dude that's trafficking in, you know, amphetamines or other things, okay? 
We don't. And why is that? Because the law understands if you get the source dealt with, you probably reduce it at the end user level as well. And what we have tried to do, we've tried to make laws that say we want to protect unborn children and we want to make that the focus. And the best way to do that is to prosecute the abortionist, not the woman. So I'm afraid that these equal protection laws don't provide equal protection for the unborn because that means they're never going to get introduced as a law that says we're going to protect unborn humans when the culture is convinced the pro-life movement hates women and wants to kill them. And that's what your friends believe, by the way, in case you haven't noticed. Think about what California just passed, how radical your own abortion laws are, how radical they are in Michigan and other states. I mean, you are in a state right now that is advertising to the world, come to us and we'll pay for your abortion and make sure you get it for free. In that kind of culture, how, how is it going to work for you to introduce a bill that says we're going to prosecute women for murder and that's the sign that we really want to protect unborn humans? Some people say, well, that's not biblical. Yes, it is. It's called prudence. And the Bible is full of scripture about being prudent and wise. What do we want to do? Do we want to protect children or do we want to prosecute mothers? And I asked a pastor the other day who, was, who came after me publicly and said, you don't want equal protection for unborn humans. And I said, I'm not sure you do either. He said, oh, yes, I do. I said, okay, let me ask you a question. Suppose there were a law on, that we were proposing that would protect all unborn humans from conception. All abortion would be banned from conception. But the law stipulated that women would not be prosecuted for murder. Would you vote to save the babies or would you let those babies die because you couldn't prosecute the mothers for, for murder? He decided to bite the bullet and say that he was going to stick with prosecution and that's the only way that equal protection could apply. I find that very troubling. I think realizing too where our culture is at, uh, there's so much misinformation Yep. Um, even when we were voting on these things and they were, you know, uh, in all of the media mm -hmm. outlets uh, in California, you could just see the propaganda just oh, yeah. pouring out. Yeah. And, um, you know, having to, I think in our day and age too, this is always good to be prudent and wise, but so many people buy into things at the moment that they read them. And so in yep. these conversations that I've had with people personally, I've, I've heard all of these arguments. Well, you know, you don't care about the rights of the mother and, yeah. uh, you know, this and that and the other. And so there's so much misinformation that we have to be able to give a defense. We have to be educated on this stuff because you're going to run into a lot of people who read something on Twitter and they took it and they, they said, this is absolute truth. And they, they're, they're standing on that hill and willing to die on it. And it's not even true to begin with. Yeah. And by the way, if you kill a born child today, you automatically do not get prosecuted for murder. The law always takes into consideration the circumstances. What are the extenuating things that were going on around that. And so for us as pro-lifers to put a law in the books that says the only way you can legitimately protect unborn humans is to prosecute women for murder, um, that just isn't going to even line up with what we do with people who regrettably kill their born children. One other thing I'll say, pro-life lawmakers, many of whom were not even Christian in the 1860s when laws against abortion were first put on the books, they felt that women often were abandoned by the men in their lives and they weren't cold-blooded killers. They were women who knew they were doing wrong but felt desperate and didn't know what to do. And the lawmakers said we ought to show Christian charity to them and work on saving their children more than just prosecuting them as cold-blooded murderers. 
Um, it doesn't follow that because a woman sins by having an abortion that she intends cold-blooded murder. And I think we need to make that prudent distinction. I and think that goes back to the reality, too, that I don't yeah. think most people really know what an abortion actually is. I mean, I, I, that's what I've experienced in talking to people is yep. the, you know, the, the grotesque nature of what an abortion actually is is something that most people are not, I don't think, aware of. And, yep. of course, there are those who are fully aware of it. Uh, they're, they're fine with it. And, you know, yep. evil is evil. And so I, I just think of Jesus's words uh, where he just says, you think you're sons of, of Abraham, but you're sons of the devil. Yeah. And he just calls evil for evil and says, you know, you guys are deceived and you think that you're doing good, but you're not. And, and even in our scripture, we know that um, they will trade what is good for what is evil. And, and it's, so it's, it shouldn't surprise us when people are fully aware of what it is and totally fine with it because the conviction of the Holy Spirit is just not in their life, and that becomes very evident when you start having these discussions. Yeah, um, that's true. By the way, did you notice I did not argue this morning or tonight that abortion was murder? What did I argue? What's our syllogism? It is wrong to what? Intentionally kill innocent human beings. And that way I don't get hung by people who say, oh, you say abortion's murder, but you won't punish it as murder. Well, I didn't argue it was murder. I argued it was the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't meet the biblical threshold of murder. I'm saying that when I make my argument that way, they can't come back and say, oh, you're inconsistent because I didn't argue murder. Uh, one other thing, even if you were inconsistent, would that refute your syllogism that abortion is wrong? No, it would not. It would just mean you're inconsistent. It would not mean they've refuted your argument. Now, I don't think you are inconsistent, but remember, syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. Yeah. We have another question that came in on the app, and it says, God's creation is human life. To make a choice to end life is murder. Why do we need to defend it more than that by saying God has a purpose for each life? Not that he doesn't, but if, but it feels like we are trying to defend what needs no defending. Well, I would agree that people with a properly formed, functioning moral conscience would recognize abortion is wrong. But we live in a world where that is not where most people are. Most people don't recognize their own sin. They don't think they're sinners. How many of your friends at work and at school wake up in the morning and say, I'm a sinner, and I'm really glad I know a Christian who can help me fix that? That's not the world we live in. The God of this age has blinded a lot of people to the truth, and so we need to be able to engage people and make arguments. A century ago, we look back and say, how could those people have possibly thought slavery was permissible or racial segregation? But they did. And Christians had to make arguments against it to reawaken the culture's moral intuitions. And uh, thank God for believers who did that. So that's what we're called to do as believers, is to be clear on a biblical worldview on an issue like this and to make good arguments so that we're able to defend what it is we believe and persuade some. You know, I, I, um, I know that we want to always keep the, the fundamental principle, you know, human life. That's a yep. human. And uh, I heard a, a story that was told. I don't remember who the author was where I read it. Pastor Michael shared this before, too. But he said, you know, if a father is out in their front yard and he's doing some yard work and his child comes up behind him and says, Daddy, can I kill this? The natural and hopefully the, the first response from the father is, well, what is it? Uh, because if we can define what it is, then we can answer that question. Yep. And 
Um, you know, if he turns around and it's a, a rattlesnake or a, a, yeah. a bee that's going to, you know, sting the kid or something, then the answer might be, yeah, why don't you go ahead and kill that before it brings harm? But if the if it was his, you know, younger brother, uh, the father's reaction is going to be, no, you cannot kill your younger brother uh, because we're recognizing the human life for what it actually is. So I think that it's really important. Another thing that I've heard said that I, I think is, is worth mentioning, because oftentimes people are appealing to caring for women. Yeah. Um, we have uh, some ladies who are involved with, you know, uh, walking women through either the process of uh, deciding to keep their, their child and not terminate their pregnancy and have an abortion and, and even post-abortive care. And something that uh, one of the ladies who does counseling in our church has said several times that I really appreciate this perspective is it's already traumatic for a woman to have an abortion. Uh, and so if, if we're appealing, a lot of people want to go to the, the rape and incest argument. And she says that's already a traumatic thing that's happened to this, this uh, young lady or this woman. And if you then encourage that young woman to have an abortion, you're adding a trauma on top of an already traumatic experience. And the world will tell you, well, this will fix it. You know, let's just eliminate the child's life. But um, what these uh, people who are on the front lines doing post-abortive care have found that what is inevitably happening is we are adding trauma to trauma. And so we're making the situation far worse. Of course, that's not our fundamental right. argument, but I think it's, it's worth mentioning that if we're talking about how to care, best care for women, that, then abortion is certainly not the answer. And uh, those who are doing post-abortive care and on the front lines can attest to that. By the way, there is nothing wrong with making it personal after you've made your objective case. Some of the best presentations I've seen involve a post-abortion woman who lays out a case for the pro-life view using that syllogism and then tells her story, making it personal. But notice she started with the objective things and then moved to how it impacted her. That's good. Yeah. We have any other questions in the room here? Yeah. Do you have the mic, bud? Is it? You know, I'll, I'll repeat your question. Go ahead. What do you say in a scenario where your pregnancy might physically harm your mother? Yeah, what about a case where the, the pregnancy threatens the life of the mother? And let me give you an exact case where that's true. It's called ectopic pregnancy. This is where the embryo implants instead of. My mic just cut it out, I, know, I think. they're cutting out a little bit. You know, we're getting censored here, folks. I think Newsom is focused in. He's dialed in on us tonight. Um, this is where the embryo, instead of implanting on the wall of the uterine cavity where it should, implants on the narrow tube, the fallopian tube, leading to that cavity. And as that baby grows in that tube, as that unborn human being grows in that tube, you can see the wrist of the mother. That tube ruptures and she hemorrhages to death internally. And uh, you can see the threat from this if you go to the CDC website or the Johns Hopkins website, you'll see how serious this can be. So you're a pro-life doctor. What do you do in this case? Do you do nothing and let two humans die because the embryo will not survive in that pathological condition? The mother will die if you do nothing. So you do nothing and let two humans die or do you act in such a way that you save one life even though the unintended but foreseen result is the death of the embryo. Well, I'm going to act to save the one life I can, the mother. Some say, well, that's abortion. No, it's not. Let's go back to our syllogism. It is wrong to what? 
intentionally kill an innocent human being. Is this intentional killing of an innocent human being? No. We foresee the death, but we don't intend it. A general in a just war, for example, can foresee the deaths of civilians, but he doesn't intend them. He knows that as he prosecutes a just war, there will be civilians caught in the crossfire, but he's not aiming for them the way Adolf Hitler did during the London Blitz when he bombed central London just to kill civilians. So in this case, I'm acting to save the one life I can rather than letting two die. And that's not abortion. That's doing the greatest moral good I can given the hand I've been dealt with. And um, I've asked a, a gal that's on our our team who's a, an OBGYN. She specializes in high-risk pregnancy. I said, "What? how often do we have do this and she assured me that there are plenty of cases where the only way to save the one life we can the mother is to end the pregnancy now I could also argue that in removing the embryo from that pathological environment I have not made him worse off he will die there he will die outside the womb the fact I don't have a rescue plan for him does not mean I've made him worse off so I'm going to do the greatest good I can which is to act to save the one life I can even though I foresee the death, I'm not intending it. Does that help? Yeah, thank you. Great this actually, I, I've, this came up uh, on some things that I was reading because I saw <laughs> a pretty heated debate on Twitter going back and forth between Ali B. Stuckey and some, some others. And uh, the argument was made, so you're against abortion. And then this person was putting Old Testament scriptures where God condones the death of children who are what we're talking about right now. Right. Uh, God is judging a people group in the Old Testament. We see this a lot. Yeah. Uh, he commands the nation of Israel or Judah to go in and wipe out a people group. And God actually explicitly says in the Old Testament that to kill the women and children too. And uh, we read those uh, passages as believers and we think, gosh, that's, that's pretty brutal. And, you know, the argument was made, so you're against abortion, but then the same God that you claim to serve is okay yeah. with this. Can you kind of expand yeah. on that? This is what's called the genetic fallacy, where you fault an idea based on its origins rather than the merits of the argument. Notice, let's say that we all worship a cruel God. How does that justify abortion? It doesn't. It just means what? We worship a cruel God. It does not mean abortion becomes permissible. What the person has done in this case is they faulted your pro-life view not based on the merits of your syllogism. They faulted it based on where you, are, where you allegedly get your argument, the origins in God. And your God is evil, therefore your view has no merit. Well, maybe my God is evil, maybe he isn't. How does that refute what I've argued here? How does that refute my scientific case? How does that refute my syllogism and my philosophy that there's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult? that justifies killing you. At best, you prove that I am theologically not very with it. You have not refuted my pro-life argument. And remember, I told you to keep the main thing the main thing. Do not let people lead you down these rabbit trails. Don't start making excuses for God. By the way, there are great books that deal with this very topic. Paul Copan's book, Is God a Moral Monster, is a great place to start. What do we do with these Old Testament commands? Uh, William Lane Craig has a good point on this. By the way, this is not related to abortion, but just wading into this question. He points out that these nations were given hundreds of years of warning in advance to repent and change, and they're all practicing child sacrifice. And we all know the influence they had on God's own people. So God is not like he's swooping in and destroying them with no warning and these are innocent noble savages that are just being brutalized 
These are very, very wicked people that God is dealing with in judgment. So what you're saying is biblical historicity and context matter. They matter, yeah. and uh, we do have to look at that. And by the way, Paul Copan can do a much better job than I am in terms of talking you through these things. So you may want to look at his book, but keep the main thing the main thing. These types of arguments, well, what do you do with God destroying innocent people in the Old Testament? Uh, look, uh, I don't have to answer that to stick to my syllogism and say, how would that disprove what I've argued about the humanity of the unborn? How does abortion become okay because God did this? Uh, you, you haven't refuted the pro-life argument. All they've done is attack you at your origin point, which is what we call the genetic fallacy. Does that make sense to everybody? Keep the main thing the main thing. That's the best advice I can give you. Don't let people change the topic on you. I think generally you will find, too, that when you just can uh, ask the Holy Spirit to guide you through these difficult conversations and keep your composure and just lay out a logical argument for human life and the sanctity of human life, you start to find that, unless you're Scott and you're debating these uh, higher-ups, <laughs> most people really don't know why they even think what they think. They really have no idea what they're talking about. And so if you would take the time to be diligent in your biblical studies and, and being equipped, like being here tonight, which thank you for being here tonight, um, yeah. you will find that you will probably, and I'm not, we're not going in and saying I'm going to win this argument, but I think you will find that most people generally don't actually really know why they believe what they believe. They haven't walked it out logically and really thought through their premises. This goes back to William Lane Craig and On Guard, he, a lot of his writing in On Guard, he's laying out premise one. If this is true, then this has to be true. Let's follow that to the next premise. Then this has to be true. And you start to find that a lot of these arguments, they just immediately crumble because they're, they're, they're flawed from their very foundation. And so uh, you, I think you'll find that to be true oftentimes with the arguments that you hear. They're fallacies from the start. And, and what happens is people get emotional. There's a lot of emotion tied to this subject. People get frustrated. They get angry. They, you know, I've had conversations where people are in tears over this. And so it's really hard, and it can be difficult to navigate the conversation. But keeping a level head and just going back to the fundamental principle of is that a human life? And if it is, then all those other things kind of, you know, Pastor Michael said this, Scott has said this a couple times today, all the other arguments kind of dissipate because if that's a human being, then what are we, what, we're, we're, we're advocating for the murdering of an intentional murdering of a child, right? Yeah. Always bring question? it back to that question, what right. is the unborn, yeah. Right there. there. It's tactical. I'm being tactical there. The, the question is, why do I define abortion as the intentional killing of an innocent human being rather than just calling it murder? Here's why. Murder in our culture is a legal term. And I don't want to have to get down in the weeds and argue, is abortion murder? If I define it as the intentional killing of an innocent human being and I show visuals of it, I speak right to people's intuitions and I get past all this need to define terms incessantly that they would rather tie me down in. So I, you know, my colleague Greg Cunningham puts it real well. He says when you show pictures of abortion, abortion protests itself. And I think that's really true. He also argues that for too long as pro-lifers, we've been shouting conclusions rather than establishing arguments. And so we say abortion's murder. A guy driving by in a car sees our sign and he says, that's your view. Now I have to have a debate with him about whether it's murder. Why not just show him 
the pictures and make my argument and give the burden of proof to him to show where I'm wrong. He can't argue with those pictures. Abortion is protesting itself at that point. And by the way, we're not using images in place of good arguments because you're hearing good arguments here. Rather, we're using them as valuable adjuncts to our arguments. Nobody thinks for a moment of going into a university class and giving a lecture on the Vietnam War without showing pictures of naked children running from a village that's just been napalmed or showing pictures of the Nazi death camps with bodies stacked like cordwood or civil rights protesters that were beaten mercilessly uh, by dog attacks and police officers and what have you. We show those images because they convey truths that words alone are powerless to convey. And I would rather speak right to the person's intuitions and try to reawaken and jumpstart their moral conscience by getting around any sticky definitions of what is and what isn't murder. That's a tactical move. Now, I've been attacked for this by some Christians who say, oh, you just won't use the Bible term. You hate God's word because he calls it murder, but you won't. Well, how good are they going to do debating the president of the ACLU on a moral issue like abortion when she can say you're using that term murder, but you don't know what it means, and she would be right. In a country where abortion is legal, abortion is not seen as murder by most of the people around us. So when you use that term, you're putting an unnecessary hurdle in them coming to the truth that abortion is wrong. So that's why I defined it the way I did. Does that make sense? When we, uh, we went on a trip, uh, my wife and I with a group, uh, and we went to Cambodia, and we had, I had heard uh, and read about the killing fields and the genocide yep. that happened in Cambodia. But when we went there, um, there the killing fields now were this horrific thing unfolded uh, in Cambodia. Uh, now is a memoriam for, and there are, there are pillars in the killing fields that are about 30 feet high, and they're fully glass, and they're full of human skulls that they've, they've dug up from the ground. Um, there are trees where they would actually grab children by their legs and hurl them against the tree to end the child's life. And there are no words necessary when you show up at a place like that. And as we walked into that memorial and you, it was like you could have heard a pin drop amongst the group of the 30 or 40 of us that were walking around because there was nothing that needed to be said. You just look at what the evidence of what had happened and the absolute destruction of human life and just the absolute evil that unfolded. And there was really nothing that needed to be said. And obviously we're a group of Christians and we're looking at this and saying, how did this happen? But I think that there is a place for for imagery and just letting it be shown for what it truly is. And people don't want to see it because it, no. it confronts their sin head on. And it makes us uncomfortable because that's the reality of what's happening. It's, it's so much easier. And I've seen debates even with Jeff Durbin on this where yeah. people are getting into it with him and they don't even want to call it a baby. They want to call it a fetus. And Jeff Durbin says, you know what that word means in Latin? It just means child. So you can put some fancy lingo on it and try to justify it and make yourself feel better by not calling it what it is, but let's call it what it is. And I, I like guys like that because they just want to get back to the, the fundamental principles. Let's get all the minutia out of the way. We can, we can debate all day about these terms and what's this and what's that, but we, we get back to the fundamental principles. So we really have time for about one more question if anybody w wants to ask one. There's one we back there. Two hands. Maybe we can just try to tackle both. Brandy, go, go ahead.
it's on. Um, so I don't know. Um, I just wanted to get your input on what you would say to parents who um, may have um, well, a first, baby that yeah. they learn with that diagnosis, and the doctor maybe tries to convince yeah. them that it, that's more humane to have the abortion. Anencephaly, for anybody who may not know what that is, that's a failure of the neurotube to fully close, and therefore you end up with a child where there might be enough basic brain function to keep organs working, but there's no consciousness present. And my answer to that is what I said earlier about other uh, human disabilities. A damaged human is not a non-human. And it's true, those children will not live long. Soldiers, though, on a battlefield who are mortally wounded will not live long, but we don't slit their throats. We make them as comfortable as we can until they die naturally from their, their injuries. And I think that same ethic applies here. So a pro-life doctor who calls themselves pro-life, but they are willing to intentionally kill a damaged human being, I don't think they understand the moral logic of the pro-life view. And actually, they've bought into the performance view of human value of pro-abortionists. The pro-life view is that all humans have value and dignity regardless of our functional abilities. You are not more human and valuable because you have a 4.0 GPA or you have cognitive abilities that are through the roof. You're not more human and valuable than someone that has the IQ of a three-year-old. Your value is based on you being a human being who bears the image of God. So when somebody says to me, I'm pro-life, but I would go ahead and do an abortion because these kids aren't going to live long anyway, that would justify me killing terminally ill patients who aren't going to live long. So I think that's a deeply problematic view. That doesn't mean it's easy on the family. I don't want to minimize that. But it's not a pro-life view to say we can kill people. That Those of us who are going to live longer have a right to intentionally kill those who will live shorter. That's a pretty bad ethic. All right, we have time for this last question here. But to prosecute her as a co-conspirator, you have to prove she knows exactly what the doctor knows. And that's a threshold you'll never meet. And therefore, if that becomes the threshold, we're never going to be able to pass laws that prosecute the abortionist because the whole case will fall apart because the, the, the uh, prosecution didn't meet the threshold of proof. That's the first thing. But here's the bigger issue. I, I want to protect all unborn children from conception. If I have to choose between saving those babies that will die if I don't have laws that protect them from conception, and if those laws are going to go nowhere in this country because the culture is convinced that we hate women and want them to die anyway, if good pro-life laws that would protect those babies and not have them die go down in flames because... Nobody will promote pro-life laws or introduce them because the, all their constituents are concerned. All we want to do is prosecute mothers for babies. 
given a choice, I'm going to stop abortion and save those children before I'm going to worry about what I do with the mothers. And we've done this in the culture for years. We've done this uh, right after the Civil War. There were Christians who said, we need to go round up all the slave owners and prosecute them for what they did. But we didn't do that. Lincoln said, no, that's not going to be good for the fabric of the nation. Let's get the slaves their freedom, and let's worry about getting this nation put back together before we do this. And can I just say one other thing? You've had 50 years in this country of legalized abortion where every woman who's had an abortion has been told it's no big deal, that it's just a bunch of fundamentalist Christians who want to stop abortion. Everything, think about it, academia is pro-abortion, the arts are pro-abortion, our legal establishments are pro-abortion, and it's sadly some of our churches are too. Against that backdrop, I don't quite agree that, that women fully understand this the way that you would need to prove it to prosecute them and prosecute the doctor. So if I have a choice between a bill that's going to save children but doesn't prosecute women for murder, I'm going to vote to save those children and let people say what they want about me being inconsistent. That doesn't refute the argument that the unborn are human with a right to life. I think so, that, you know, even that movie that came out, um, I, and the name is escaping me, but it was the girl's testimony who actually had a job at Planned Parenthood. She, unplanned, uh, yeah. Yes, and uh, even in that, in her testimony, um, she, she testifies to the fact that she didn't understand fully what was happening. Uh, she took the pills that Planned Parenthood gave her, and then when she experienced what the pills did to her, and, the, the, uh, and then she was taken into the back room and actually saw a fetus on the table that had just been, you know, murdered. Then she she came to the realization of what was yeah. actually happening. So I think I think that there's certainly um, it doesn't justify it. I think what you're essentially saying though is we're appealing to the greater good and yeah, for the sake of saving children. Uh, yeah, I understand. You are what you're not going to turn this culture around immediately because Roe has been reversed. It's not going to happen. You've had 50 years of institutionalized abortion for any reason at all. And for us to make our primary focus right now that we want to prosecute women for murder rather than we want to save children is tactically a huge mistake. That's what I'm arguing. Whether we think it's biblically consistent or not, children will die because pro-life bills will not get introduced that would have saved them because lawmakers fear that all we want to do is prosecute women for murder. So let's, how about this? Why don't we just introduce a bill that says you can't intentionally kill innocent human beings regardless their age and development. Let's get that established in our law and then let the penalties work themselves out over time as they always do. Like I said a moment ago, we don't even automatically prosecute women who kill their born children for murder. Almost weekly you will find newspaper stories where that didn't happen. And people say, wow, what, what are we doing here? Well, I get it, but the law has thresholds of proof you have to meet. You can't just automatically say we're going to be able to prosecute someone for murder. You've got to meet that meeting of the mind standard, and if you don't meet it, the case against the abortionist gets thrown out as well, and now nobody gets stopped. I want to stop doctors from killing children. That's what I want to do. I want laws that protect children, and let's go ahead and let the law be a moral teacher over time to convince people of how they ought to behave. Yeah, and it's. I think it's. There's no denying how complex and difficult this is because yeah. I think in an ideal situation, justice would be carried out in you know every facet. But 
there's a reality that if we want to see any improvement in the way that our country currently operates in this area, there has to be some tactics involved and strategic We have to be strategy. prudent and we have to think about this long term, not just the immediate moment. And long term, we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to protect unborn children from the beginning through all stages of pregnancy? And we need to be shrewd as serpents, gentle as doves. We need to be wise. We need to be prudent. And we have to work with the legal system we have, whether we like it or not. And that legal system makes the, the proof of co-conspiracy very difficult. It's near impossible to meet that standard. So I want to protect the children rather than approach something I have no chance of ever overcoming. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be consequences for intentionally killing an innocent human being, but that's a prudential decision. The moral thing I want to address right away is stop the killing of innocent human beings. Yeah. Well, can we thank Scott for his time and for being with us today? Thank you. Be sure to get your sled card if you didn't get one. Uh, they'll be on the back table. And you're not allowed to take one for someone who wasn't here tonight. They need to, they need to be prosecuted for not being here. <laughs> well, Scott, I just want to say personally thank you. Um, your humility and, uh, is refreshing and um, encouraging. And I... I was able to spend some time with you today, and we, we have kindred spirits in that we're both Dodger fans, so uh, we have that going. But, um, I and really In-N-Out Burger. And In-N-Out. We did share In-N-Out and uh, have a great lunch. So um, I just want to thank you, though, for your time, you. for flying literally across the country Glad to be to here it. with us. Um, just real quick before you guys go, um, Scott's website is prolifetraining.com. Um, it's hard to miss because Scott's right on the front page. Um, and so you can go there. They have a resources tab. They've got upcoming events. They've got all their information there. Um, he's got presentations available on here so you can rewatch things. And, uh, you know, we also will have this available. Both this and this morning will be available at livingtruthcorona.org and in the app where you can go view these again and take notes. Um, if you're like me, writing things down and trying to commit them to memory so that you can be better equipped uh, when this comes up in our culture. Amen. And it's, it's, going to conti it's not going away. It's not going away. So we need to be equipped and have uh, the answers for people so we can represent Christ well and be ambassadors for the kingdom because that is most certainly our call. So yep. go check out Scott's table. Um, I am a big advocate for supporting our guests. So um, go donate to their ministry. If you believe in what they're doing, would you take some time to just go maybe grab some books? $25 for two books. You get both books for very 25 good. So. Yep. Um, go support them in that way. Uh, thank you again, Scott. Can we pray before we part we ways? We can. I just want to say one yeah. thing. I hope you folks realize how fortunate you are to be in a church where the spiritual leaders are not afraid to take issues like this on. So give it up for your team. Yeah, this is great. Uh, it is rare we find this, that when we travel, that we find leadership willing to risk this. And your team here is willing to do it. Pastor Mike, Pastor Shane, and I appreciate both of you. Well, we appreciate you, and um, you are, are you flying back home tomorrow? Tomorrow morning, i got to get to LAX by 8 a.m., so I'm leaving in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Well, let's pray for Scott and for their ministry, and uh, then we will be on our way. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we've had to be here tonight to just be able to have 
even some difficult conversation and navigate very complex issues. But at the end of the day, Lord, thank you for Scott's insight and uh, reminding us that we have to get back to the very, just the foundation, the fundamental principle here. Um, And so help us, Lord, to have a desire to want to know you more, to be ambassadors for your kingdom, to take truth into a culture that is so lacking truth. And um, Lord, give us discernment and wisdom as we have conversations. Help us not to shrink back, um, but to take steps of faith and to trust that uh, we have it pretty good in uh, the states right now, Lord. The, it seems that largely the worst persecution will endure is maybe somebody telling us off uh, in a public space when we try to have this conversation. And uh, may we know that we are in good company when the world despises the truth, because Lord, when you brought the truth, they despised you. And so... Um, may we just follow your lead, Lord. Give us wisdom and discernment. We pray over this issue and over our, our nation, Lord, that we would repent, Lord, that we would that eyes would be open, that scales would fall, that, that people would see this for what it truly is. And um, Lord, I want to specifically pray for the church, that the church would step up in this area, that pastors would, would no longer... Uh, shy away from this issue and other very relevant and difficult issues in our culture right now. We are called to speak the truth. And so would you empower us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, uh, give us the faith and the boldness that we need to proclaim the truth. And of course, we can do that in a way that loves people. And uh, in this particular issue, Lord, we don't shy away from the complexities and the difficulties of all these different questions that have been asked. Um, It's certainly not easy, but we know we are called to do one thing to please you, Lord. It's to be faithful. And so we want to we be full of faith, and we want to please you in that way, Lord, and honor you. So we pray over Scott and his ministry that you would just continue to bless him, Lord, keep him safe. We know there are many who probably are not his biggest fan uh, because of the stance that he's taken on this. And so just continue to open up doors for them, Lord. We pray over the, the Walk with Love Life this Saturday that, um, Lord, we pray that people will be saved because we are out uh, on Saturday morning just representing you, Lord. We pray that as the worship music goes out, as testimonies are shared, as uh, groups of people are walking, Lord, that we would be, uh, it would be a powerful testimony to the, to the, to the uh, neighborhood, Lord, and that even those who may be uh, going to that Planned Parenthood location on Saturday morning would have a second thought and maybe, you know, stop, Lord, and that they would, they would decide to keep that child instead, Lord. We, we ask for you to do that work in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen. Amen.